0: Artificial intelligence. Two words that have launched a thousand horror movies and cause a great deal of anxiety in many people. Will a machine take my job away? What will society look like in five, 10, 20 years? What happens to people made in God's image when the economy is filled with machines made in man's image? Our guest today is Trip Parker, a technical program manager at Amazon working on Alexa directly. He tackles these issues and more by brilliantly and seamlessly balancing philosophy and technology from a Christian perspective. I'm Will Sorrell. This is a podcast dedicated to analyzing yesterday, asking today, and anticipating tomorrow so that the local and global church may be prepared for the changing economy. Welcome to the future of faith and work. Welcome to Ergonomy. Ergonomy.
1: All right. Uh, yeah. So Trip Parker, um, I uh, grew up in North Carolina originally. Um, so grew up in the in the church there. I don't have like a uh, people always ask me, like, what's your kind of conversion or coming to faith story? I don't really have one. I'm just one of those kids that kind of grew up in the church. And so there's it was, it was never like really a time that I wasn't didn't consider myself a believer. But I also grew up a really huge science fiction fan. Um, and so I went to college, um, and I was kind of like, I'm kind of like a philosophy, uh, theology nerd as well. And so the only thing I knew that I wanted to kind of major in, uh, was philosophy. Um, and, but my dad told me I needed to be, get something that I could actually get a job doing. Um, and so, uh, they're not making philosophy factories anymore. So I decided, uh, okay, I'll do computer engineering, computer science as well. And so, um, I majored in computer engineering, computer science and philosophy at Duke. Um, and, uh, the, the area of philosophy that I was really interested in was philosophy of mind, And that was really related to my science fiction, like artificial intelligence, um, kind of bent. And so computer science, computer engineering was, uh, kind of a, a natural, um, kind of follow on to that as well. Um, this was kind of like the, the early days of kind of the modern AI kind of revolution and machine learning. This was before a lot of the neural nets and things like that that we can build now um, really became popular or, um, or really practical for most uses. Um, you know there's an AI winter kind of we call it the AI winter in like the 60s and 70s um, where everyone was kind of down on it and so the research funding went down and that kind of stuff and for for decades really we didn't have very much really kind of until like the the mid to late 2000s and then um, with the popularity of like Facebook and some of the Honestly, some of the advertising platforms really gave way to some machine learning techniques to try and get people to click on ads and those kind of things and recommend content like articles for them and that kind of stuff. That kind of revolution spurred a lot of investment in this area, and that's kind of where we're at today. And so I kind of rode that wave. So I did a lot of work for Microsoft and monetization strategies and and search engine stuff. And and that's all a bunch of machine learning techniques. Now I work for Amazon and Alexa Health and Wellness. Uh, I also worked on the Microsoft Band, which was like a fitness tracker on some of their heart rate algorithms. Um, There's also a feature called Guided Workouts where you could, if I knew what exercise you were doing, I could count how many reps you did. Um, uh, um, So, you know, if you were doing, you know, bench presses, I, I could know, okay, you got through 13 uh, of them and those kind of things uh, using like the accelerometer and and some some various techniques. So anyway, so it's cool stuff. So that's kind of what I work on um, in terms of the Chicago um, uh, stuff. I I'm also involved in, a, in an organization called Kairos here in Seattle, um, and so Kairos is a faith and work um, group that tries to equip and encourage Christians in the workplace in business who are out doing. Um, work. And so one of my good friends, Al Ayersman, who was a former uh, director of R&D at Boeing, I'm retired now, but he's one of the biggest kind of names in the Faith and Work Initiative. He was also the founder of the Faith and Work Conference in Chicago. And so um, I've done um, a lot of talks on Christianity and artificial intelligence and those kind of things um, from a lot of different perspectives. And Al heard me um, speak at one of these conferences and he's the one that invited me to do it I also sit on the board with Al at Kairos um, so we've become really good friends over the the last couple of years
0: that's fantastic and yeah and it's good to hear I guess from my side how you ended up on the stage in Chicago I ended up there uh, by buying a, a plane ticket and just sitting in yeah. the back but that's incredible um, what I'm hearing you say though is after the new year all these resolutions Alexa is going to get me in shape is that true <laughs> yeah like- uh, yeah, well, I mean,
1: the, the idea, definitely it's an initiative that Amazon wants to invest more in. Um, I, can't, I can't talk specifically about all the things that I'm working on because sure. they're all yet to be released products. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, there's an initiative um, at, uh, at Amazon and in a lot of companies to, to really try and invest, like use some of this technology that we have now and apply it in some of these other spaces. It actually makes your life, lives better, right? Uh, It makes you physically better and we can give insights and recommendations to you and those kind of things um, that usually has been, uh, you know, normally reserved for like advertising and which articles should you click and what, you know, posts should you see on Facebook and those kind of things. Um, But the same techniques can be applied to, you know, health recommendations and those kind of things. And so, um, yeah, so there's a whole like kind of swath and a, a big division that's been spun up here. And I can't, can't talk specifically about what we're working on yet, but um, but it is exciting. And this is one of the reasons that I, I, I feel better about working in this space as a Christian um, sure. and applying some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning to these kind of problems, as opposed to just getting you to click on more ads and those kind of things. Like these are important things that people need to do in order to just make websites work and those kind of things. Um, but it, I feel better about this as a Christian working on this specific stuff. Um, so, yeah.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense, and one thing I I really have heard you talk about before and have really appreciated, and one thing that sort of drew me to want to talk to you again in this format is you talked a lot about the nature of work as not something that has to earn a salary. I think it's something we inherently know. We spend a whole day taking care of someone who is sick, or if you're a parent and you spend a day with your children, that is work. You feel as though you've worked, but perhaps society doesn't recognize that, wouldn't put that term on it. And it seems right. like a lot of the things you're doing with Alexa are enabling people to take care of their physical bodies, which the scriptures right. highly value, um, mm-hmm. in order to accomplish all work tasks in, in a more efficient way.
1: Yeah, and that's why, you know, Kairos here in Seattle, we, we don't say faith at work at Kairos, it's faith in business, because mm. it's specifically for people who are in the like the business market um and and like then that's kind of what we cater to and that's why we do that because like we don't want to devalue the work that happens outside of business it's really really important and in fact it's what you were created to do and so you shouldn't think that just because i'm working but it's not accruing to a salary that i'm getting that therefore it's no longer work and i think that like all the kind of stay-at-home parents around the world would understand that and be like, yes, obviously, this is work. This is not something that, uh, that you know, is, I'm not just like lounging in a hammock and eating grapes all day, this is work, it's real work. Um, and in some ways it can be more exhausting than being in the business place, and so, Um, And it's what you were created to do. And so, yeah, I don't I don't like to devalue the like work is more encompassing than just your salary and your 401k and how you pay the mortgage. It's a much bigger concept than that.
0: Absolutely. And that's that's good to hear, I guess, that all encompassing view. I like that distinction of faith in business versus faith at work. I had not heard. You quite put it that way, at least uh, distinguishing it in those two categories, but I like that a lot. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. just think of business as a subset of the work that you sure. do, and and then you know, then it becomes much clearer that I'm always working. I'm always doing something. So it's like the Bible says, you're either slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. It's the same thing. You're always working towards something. Um, it's just a no matter of what are you working toward, and sometimes that's business, and sometimes it's work outside of that, and that's fine. We, we need to be able to talk in those categories for this modern world to make sense.
0: Certainly. Speaking of the modern world, um, something I I had not been as familiar with until starting this research process is, I guess, the difference between AI, artificial intelligence, and and machine learning. I guess for my sake and just for the general audience, can you break down any walls that might exist between those two or where they overlap?
1: Yeah. So you can think of machine learning. I mean, technically, machine learning is a subset of AI. Um, But not every AI system has to be a machine learning system. So a machine learning system uh, would typically take um, like a bunch of data as input um, and try and there's a couple different kinds. There's like classification algorithms where it tries to like organize the data according to common attributes that it it spots as patterns and math. Um, And then uh, and then another kind would be like kind of a, a predictive engine that like a neural net or something like that, which would try and predict what is a good output from a, a like a good prediction from a bad prediction. So if I gave you, um, you know, uh, if I gave a, a machine learning, like a neural net, uh, a bunch of pictures of dogs and a bunch of pictures of wolves, and then I give it a new picture um, and I say, is this a dog or is it a wolf? It was, was going to make a prediction about whether or not it thinks that particular Um, Picture is a picture of a dog or a wolf. And so that's a machine learning technique. There are different kinds of AIs, though. Um, They're not as widely used, and that's why they tend to be conflated now. Machine learning is kind of where it's at. Um, There's something called like an inference engine. And so an inference engine is, you know, you give um, you give the, the system a bunch of kind of rules, like bottom line truths that it can derive like kind of second order truths from and it's not exactly machine learning because it's not like going out and looking at data and trying to figure out what the rules are it's more like a logical deduction from the baseline rules that it has and so those were more um those were more common uh especially uh in early days of like aviation um and, and those kind of like you know automatic pilots and those kind of things um, where, where the rules of physics was very well known. And we're not, trying to, we're not trying to get it to figure out all the rules of how to, what angle should this plane be on and those kind of things. Like we know the physics of it. We just needed to do it. So like, that would be an inference engine. And that's still, we would say, like a, a type of artificial intelligence. Um, but it's, it's different, I think, than the way that we normally think of it artificial intelligence, which is machine learning, which is more similar to machine learning. Um, so yeah, so those kind of like the distinctions. Like just think about ML as a, like a subset of AI, mm-hmm. but it's not um, – but uh, but honestly, that's 99% of AI today um, right. that's been commercialized and used is machine learning. So that's why it tends to be conflated because these other types that are theoretical or or actual but not very widely used, they're just not as useful to us in the engineering world right now because we haven't figured out how to make them
0: broadly applicable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember you talking about before the the dogs and wolves depiction that if you're trying to describe to someone, you know, the difference between a dog and a wolf is actually kind of hard to put into words. But uh, apparently the machine I, th- I think picked up that snow a snow background, uh, right? More more often a wolf. But then if you put a Chihuahua in the snow. It might right.
1: think it's a wolf. So. You might think it's a wolf because it'll they'd be like, Well, there's snow there and you know, people like to take pictures of wolves on snow, so that's a signal. And there's a lot of those kind of examples. There's actually uh, there was one application where they try where someone tried to train an AI to um, like figure out if a particular tank was Russian or American back in like the Cold War kind of uh, era pictures of different kinds of tanks and uh and it seemed like it was working until it gave it a bunch you gave it a bunch of new pictures, and then you figured out well, all the Russian tanks were all those pictures were on a cloudy day, and so the AI was actually just looking for clouds in the sky and if so, it figured it must be in Russia, therefore it must be a Russian tank and so these are the kind of things with like these kind of neural nets and machine learning systems that you don't really know is it's kind of opaque to us a lot of times uh without further introspection of what exactly it's learning but the The promise actually of it is, is that it's going to be able to learn things a that you may not have noticed. Um, but b, um, that you you do notice but you can't articulate. Like I can't write a simple like computer algorithm to figure out if something is a dog or a wolf. And in fact, like you would struggle, I think, if I add you like write down on a piece of paper definitively to someone who's never seen a dog or a wolf, how to tell the difference. You would really really struggle with that and so would a computer programmer if i was trying to program a computer to do it and that's the that's kind of like the promise of ai that just by it will figure out the patterns sometimes it will figure out patterns that are absolutely incorrect but a lot of times uh, if we give it the right data and the right broad set of data and those kind of things it will figure out something that's actually real and something that maybe you knew But maybe you didn't, and that's where healthcare is really interesting to me because now there's a lot of cures and there are a lot of things we don't know about how these diseases behave and those kind of things, and your body is incredibly complicated, the number of variables going on. And so that's like one I think of the promises of the healthcare market for AI and, and ML in particular is that it's going to notice things that a doctor would never notice just because it can look at millions and millions and millions of cases and spot patterns that an individual doctor would never be able to see. Um, And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about that particular application of it.
0: That's incredible. Um, I think you've talked before about uh, Polanyi's paradox, that whole idea of uh, we know more than we can tell. And so I appreciate you flushing that out there.
1: Yeah, and so that, that's part of the problem going back to the wolf and the dog example. You know the difference between a wolf and a dog. And so it's one of my, you know, when I have a three-year-old now, but whenever he was like two years old and for, like learning all these, like every day he has a new word that he's learned. One of his favorite things to do was to go and just like, we're on a walk and he's pointing to things and he's just naming them, right? He's like, that's a hedge. That's a wolf. And that's very Garden of Eden, right? Go and name things. Um, and so that's like, you just name this, name that. Is that a hedge, is that a bush, is that a tree, whatever. I never gave him a definition of a hedge versus a bush, right? That wasn't, an, I just gave him examples of it. And right. I was like, well, that's, that's a hedge, that's a bush. Um, and over time he learned the difference, but he doesn't know how um, to, to define that. If I asked him for that definition he wouldn't be able to tell me what is a tree but he knows what a tree is. He can point out trees reliably. And so that was Polanyi's paradox is that we have this with a type of knowledge called tacit knowledge um, that, uh, that we know it's in our head, but we can't articulate it. Sure. And if you can't articulate it, I can't write it into computer code either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where machine learning again can learn some of this tacit knowledge that we don't even have great introspection. And you find this a lot in psychology um, just from, uh, so if you, um, so like uh, uh, um, Piaget, I don't know if you've heard of the, the like, social like child psychologist Piaget, um, but he, uh, he observed kids playing like tiddlywinks or some game, right? And he would, like if you pulled them out of like the game that they were all playing, they were playing it correctly. But if you ask any individual kid, like what are the rules of the game? They would all give different answers, but they could collectively Play the game. And so it's only when they're older could they eventually give correct answers. And I think the right way of looking at us is that we're all kind of in that in between child to adult stage in a lot of these areas where we kind of know something, but we can't really articulate it. Or maybe Mm -hmm. we know, or maybe even like the group knowledge is tacit as well. And so this is one of the strengths of the church, right? Is that we get all of these people. And this is why, like, you know, when people get into these kind of single generation churches, I think it's really harmful. You get with a bunch of people like you, and they all think like you, and they all have the same kind of knowledge base that you do. Well, there's a lack of maturity and wisdom there that can't really be articulated very well, but it'll show up. And so that's the strength of the church is this kind of like broad kind of tacit knowledge, not just within the individual, but that exists, but even within the larger body as well. and so th- – but that's, that's, that is what the strength of computer uh, – of machine learning is, is that it can spot some of these kind of tacit assumptions and tacit knowledge that we have that we can't really articulate. I can't tell the computer how to tell the difference between a dog and a wolf, but that doesn't mean I don't know it. I do know the difference. Um, I just can't articulate it. So that's Polanyi's paradox, and that was kind of his argument um, for the types of knowledge that we have. And this is what – and this is kind of the basis for why we decided – why we tried to build systems that could learn some of this knowledge without us having to explicitly tell it.
0: Right. And that's, that's interesting to hear you say as well. I remember um, an old C.S. Lewis quote where he spoke about how it, it is very likely that in God's communication with us through the word in Jesus's teachings, he has to limit himself within finite language in order to communicate to us. So I guess this is getting a bit into more of your, your f- philosophical uh, side of the brain, which you've also mastered. But how he's lisping to us he's speaking to us almost in baby talk and that's and that's not to devalue what he is communicating and that we can't trust it or that we can't understand it but it's rather so that we can understand a piece of something that is so very much larger and which is his character so yeah
1: you're speaking you're speaking my love language by quoting c.s lewis for sure um uh, yes, and so like the medievals would call that God condescends to us, right? right? Exactly. And, and not like in a negative way, is that he's trying to reach us on our level and speak to us in a way that we understand in, in much the same way that I talk to my three-year-old. I don't explain to him like, okay, see we're this spinning orb in space and the sun and we're rotating around the sun and whenever we're rotating around the sun and the earth, that's when we can see the sun. No, I say the sun's rising, mm-hmm. right? And, and like, I'm condescending to some extent, and we still do this with each other because it's really hard to describe it otherwise. Um, and, and, but just think about how much more God would have to do that to in, like, kind of engage with us as well. Um, yeah, and, and that's exactly it, is that there's so, mu- there's so much truth and knowledge is so much more encompassing than, A, what we can articulate, but B, what we can even comprehend, um, that it's, it's necessary actually to build some of these tools Um, to help us understand just the complexity, even if we can't articulate it. And we Mm -hmm. have to be careful about how we do it and how we apply it, because it's very powerful. Um, But that's the thing, like no one, you know, Thomas Aquinas said like, you know, a single human can't even understand the essence of a fly. Um, And like in the healthcare space, man, your body is complicated. If I'm trying to predict how to treat, you know, a particular kind of tumor in your pancreas or whatever, Um, and all the data that goes into that from your diet, your, all the things that go into that particular thing is too much for a human to handle just that one item. And that's where we can build tools being kind of sub creators. Um, we can build tools, um, to try and answer some of those questions or make better predictions than what we can make. and, And, therefore like try to kind of recreate the garden in some sense.
0: Certainly. And yeah, that's a huge thing for me as well. The narrative from Genesis to Revelation being one from, from a garden to a city, how we are vice regents, if you will, that it's our job to, to build and to cultivate society so that it becomes more mature and developed. But let me ask you this as far as the, the, the philosophy goes, I'm really interested in, in this intersection. You've made me interested in this intersection. We, you're talking a lot about machine learning as far as making Observations and then making predictions, educated predictions based on the observations. So whether it's the snow for the wolves or the the clouds for the Russian tanks, has any of your your research or any of your work sort of unveiled something to you about the way that you or humans make assumptions about each other? Um, has that sort of revealed any sort of bias that you see? Just I guess in our fallen state.
1: Uh, I mean, yes, and. I think that, you know, one of the things that we try and do, like artificial neural networks were intentionally built um, to try and mimic some of the ways that your brain works. Now, it's not exactly the same because we don't really fully understand how neurons in your brain work. But we try and mimic um, some of their features um, in designing engineer, engineers this way. So you have like two, uh, like we talk about two different systems of your brain. I um, mean, you have like your limbic system. Um, which is kind of like your emotional processing, kind of like the more primitive, kind of just reactionary part of your brain. And then you have your frontal cortex. Um, Your frontal cortex is that rational part. It's that conscious, like, reasoning part of your brain. What's really interesting is that um, most of the time, whenever I ask you to make a decision on something, uh, it's your limbic system is engaged first. You make the decision, and then your frontal cortex is engaged after the fact so it's almost as if you're trying to post-hoc reason why you did something um and so it's very easy to see why why that might have been useful right you do something and then you need to communicate with people why did you do it um and so but you're you're kind of making it up on the fly in a lot of ways and I, you've probably experienced this actually once i once i saw like a you know a bunch of these uh like scans of how, what regions got engaged and when the person performed the action and all this kind of stuff it's i started thinking you've probably had that happen are you married i, I, I am know. married yes you a year and married? a half
0: so i'm an expert yeah.
1: <laughs> okay so so like you probably had this moment where you did something and your wife was like why did you do that and then you're you're actually trying to think of why you did it you try so right? hard and quickly, yeah and you're too. just like yeah and you're just like because you don't at that moment, if you're honest, you're like, I don't really know why I did it. I just did the thing. And now I'm trying to reconstruct why I might have done that particular thing. So you're, you're, I think you're implicit, like you're kind of intuitively aware that this is going on, but we kind of gloss over it a lot. That I'm consciously making a lot of the decisions when in fact, you're not consciously making a lot of decisions. You're consciously explaining your decisions Mm -hmm. um, after the fact. And so you could easily see where, why this would have been useful. But then also why uh, this could be really problematic, um, actually, uh, if you're if you're reacting kind of emotionally to um, to a lot of things. And so um, if, if, for instance, you've had a bad experience with a certain segment of the population, whether that's race or gender or anything else like that that the emotional part of your gra- brain might just assign a category of danger to that group and you can make decisions based on that. Um, and then your post-hoc reasoning why you did that thing right. and why you have that prejudice and, and those kind of things. And so you can easily see why that would happen. And, and the, honestly, the same thing can happen with machine learning though. Um, if I, uh, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of states that use um, some kind of black box machine learning to predict uh, recidivism rates in, um, in uh, you know, people that are in prison, like whether or not they're likely to reoffend afterwards. And they use that in kind of like, do we let them out early on probation or do we keep them in? And it's it's been shown that a lot of these ML systems do take race into consideration, even if it wasn't explicitly told for them to do so because of the data that you fed into the system, right? Mm. And so you fed the data into the system, including this as a variable, and if the machine knows, notices a correlation between that variable and the thing it's trying to predict, it's going to pay attention to that. And your brain is very similar, um, and it takes like, very, very conscious efforts to try and get yourself out of it and notice when you're doing it. And so, yeah, I mean that's the thing with, with how your, your brain definitely works that way. Um, and it, machine learning ends up being very similar, uh, because we're, we're essentially reconstructing, you know, as best we can, how your brain works. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's definitely, uh, true. Uh, and there, there's lots of examples of that. Um, but yeah, no, and, and this is the problem with people, um, just behaving and interacting with it. This is why we get tribal. This is why we get all those kind of things It's because like in this fallen state, our brain, we're reacting, and then we're thinking. Yes. um, Consciously. And like, we shouldn't fool ourselves. None of us should fool ourselves, no matter which area we're arguing, no matter your political persuasion, one way or the other, we ought not fool ourselves that that's what's going on. Um, And we should be honest about that. And only once you are honest about that. And that's why like, kind of a corporate community is really, really important, because then we Mm -hmm. can have Conversation. That's why the church is important. You right. can't just be out there because you're never going to get those kind of feedback mechanisms that says actually you're wrong here. Um, you're never going to get that kind of call to account uh, or naming of the sin or any of the like the ways that we in Christianity uh, describe it. You're never going to get that without being a part of that community.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting to hear you talk about how the things that we in our fallen state sort of make in our image. Are mm-hmm. fallen, perhaps even to a greater degree. You know, we're made in the image of God, and when we were created, it was very good, right? But because of the fall, uh, the image is still imprinted, but there's a fracturing in that relationship, and so, but between us and God, and between each other, and so it's only natural, I think, for our work to be fallen, um, not only for the process, but also for the product itself, right. and I guess. ML and AI can highlight that perhaps in a degree that someone else might not see, but does feel implicitly. And so I guess it's good to give language to that. But speaking of, speaking of um, the fall, I guess, as far as jobs go and the economy goes, I think when I I talk to people um, and I've mentioned this interview before, I'm talking to someone who's knows a lot about AI and ML. One of the first questions is, well, When's my job gonna go? You know, what's how, how much longer can I keep doing it before I'm replaced by a robot? And I think there's a lot of, of a jovial nature in that, but I think there's also a lot of deep, serious fear from um, from a lot of people that as technology increases, as you see um, different robots come out on Facebook and uh, move about, you know, what what is the role of humanity going forward? So, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, how, how will the job market change in the next five, 50 years? Right. So, I mean, 50 years is a long time. Yeah.
1: I would be reluctant to make any predictions 50 years from now. Um, but so I, I, I think we should, in, in AI circles, you have to um, kind of distinguish between AGI, which is general intelligence, and uh, a special intelligence. Um, so, general intelligence is like what you are. Um, you can talk, you can translate languages you can drive a car you can do lots of things you're generally intelligent you can learn a wide variety of tasks and those kind of things Um, a special intelligence would be like uh, siri who can translate your you know your speech into text right Um, so that would be a special kind of intelligence but like siri can't fly a plane Um, siri can't uh, diagnose a disease yet Siri can't, you know, do a lot of these things. Um, and so we would call that a special intelligence. So I'm going to talk about special intelligence because if general intelligence happens, then uh, it's like, okay, well, then they can do everything, um, theoretically. Um, for, so for specialized intelligence, anything that's cognitively repetitive mm-hmm. and costly is, um, is the place where I think um, we, we're going to see the most disruption. Um, and so, uh, if it's cheap, if if like it costs us nothing and we hardly ever do it, even though it's cognitively repetitive, no one's going to build an AI and invest the time in that because it just doesn't cost us very much. We're going to focus on the things that are very costly, um, that are time consuming, um, but are cognitively repetitive. So I don't think we should think about it as we're going to replace all of these jobs. I think what we're going to do is we're going to make the people who do those jobs way, way, way more productive. So that they can do uh they can do more of it and so a a a good example that i often use is like the agricultural revolution um we produce way more food now than we did 150 years ago but 150 years ago uh over 95 percent of people worked in agriculture um and now it's like less than it's like three percent of the population works in agriculture so we've decreased exponentially the amount of people working in agriculture that are farmers and those kind of things, um, while simultaneously making them way more productive. Um, So we can produce a lot more with a lot fewer people. So it's not that there's no farmers now, it's just that there's a lot fewer of them. You can think about the same thing, you could think of the same thing with like doctors, like radiologists, or lawyers, or accountants, or truck drivers, or whatever, Um, These are all cognitively repetitive tasks. And so it's not that I'm saying that there won't be any accountants. I'm saying that the accountants of the future will be so much better um, and more productive due to the AI tools that they have at their disposal um, that we will need way fewer of them. And so those people that are like, so like 95% of the people that were accountants will have to do something else. And this is true for a lot of different industries. And so that's where I think, you know, whether or not it's five or 10 years, that's where we're heading is a shredding, mm-hmm. not an elimination of jobs, but a shredding. And what we're gonna have to do is figure out how to productively move people from those industries into something else that's productive for them to do. Um, and I don't know how to do that, to be quite frank. It's, um, it's, I was it's hoping happening. you were.
0: That's, that's why I'm talking I to know. you. You're supposed to yeah, fix it. No, Come on. I
1: don't, I don't know how to do that. The problem is, is that like, the agriculture revolution by today's standards happened really slow. Um, like, it's not like overnight we had tractors you know, in every field and you know, modern-day agriculture and fertilizer and all that kind of stuff. It was slow, but it happened. And so in some sense, there were, it was kind of an easier transition, though it probably didn't feel like it at the time. Um, you know, th- there were a lot of, you know, especially the Industrial Revolution, you had like the Luddites and those kind of things that tried to shut down factories because their jobs were being replaced. So in some sense, this is not a new problem. In some sense, the rate, though, at which it's happening is different or potentially could be a lot different. It's one thing to replace millions of jobs over 20, 30 years. It's another thing to do it over 10 um, and how do you do that? Um, so so that, that's kind of my worry about it. Now, it, it would be similar. I was, when people are like, "Well, shouldn't we just stop it?" Um, no, I don't think so. It will be a much, much richer world, a much more efficient world uh, in the future, um, with this technology. We mm-hmm. can produce way more with way less. So right. you're like we will be a much, much richer world. We can solve problems that we cannot solve today in this future world. Where AI is a, is a tool to be used to solve these problems. So the, the analogy that I often give is like, what if I give you a what if I gave you a box and you could plug into your house um, that provided you with free electricity indefinitely? Right? And so every other outlet in your house and all those kind of things, and you could plug if you have an electric vehicle, you could plug into your car and your car would just run indefinitely. Should we stop that technology from being sold? Like most people would be like, no. That would be awesome. No electricity right. bills, no burning gas, no all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, but think about overnight, all the people that would lose their job. Mm-hmm. How many people work in the energy sector? How many people work in like building uh, combustion engines? How many people work in all of these places, all the gas stations, everything that we built? It would, it would displace tens of hundreds of millions of jobs worldwide. Um, It would be, and so we would have that problem, but no one would say, let's not do it. It would be more like, okay, given that we should do it, how do we make this work? And Mm -hmm. what role at various, what level as us as individuals, us at various institutional levels, including the church, how do we engage on this to make it work because it needs to be done? And so that's where I think the future of work is, You know, we're going to do this. There's too much incentive not to do it. And we should do it because like if I can, you know, cure cancer using these tools, if I can, you know, make a much more efficient world, if I can get rid of, you know, a lot of our energy problems and all those kind of things by solving some of these issues, um, then I should.
0: Um, These things are glorifying to God. I mean, we can't just say they're – yeah, I mean it's not just that they're they're neat or it would be cool if we could, but to be able to eliminate – the threat of cancer and to be able to have sustainable energy to, to take care of the world. That's, that's great. That's fulfilling right. the cultural mandate that we're given in the garden. Yeah. And so, and it, but, doesn't,
1: and, it, and it doesn't mean though, that there's not negative consequences right. to it yes. because we yeah. do live in a fallen world. And so in, in the same way that like, you know, we've in America, at least we've largely solved the hunger problem. Right now, there's negative consequences to that as we're seeing that like obesity is an issue now but right. in some sense obesity is kind of like a, a it's a feature not a bug of the of the agricultural revolution and the fact that we can grow food cheaply and provide it to people um and so i'm married a, to a
0: dietitian, a, so you're speaking my like, language here yeah a, so, so <laughs> that's his it podcast but
1: yeah exactly so it just makes sense we're like yes we should do this we should provide people with enough food that you know cheaply that they sh- now the negative consequences is they mightn't eat too much of it um, or the wrong kinds of it because their brains are wired to like sugar um, and those kind of things. And so sure. that's, that's where I think that we need to have a more mature conversation than just the this is all good. We're going to create utopia. Um, like the Babylon situation, or oh, this is bad. We just need to stop it and like become Amish or something. We need like the church needs to like thread the needle on this. It's really really important, um, and I don't. I, I I'm seeing more interest in the church and uh, in, in trying to talk about this, but I often see that I think that they're coming to it with a preconceived notion of what their preferred solution is. What um, are
0: those preferred solutions?
1: I think those are the two, right? Is that this is going to be great, and we just need to do like like lay like layer on universal basic income or something, um, and then we have our utopia, um, or uh, we should stop this because this is like we're we're create we're opening Pandora's box. We're we're forging the ring of power or something, and we can't control it, and we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- th- that's th- those are the two kind of. Um, polar opposites that i see a lot when people come to this topic and not like a more and and maybe that's how churches argue about things and so like and we need to but we need to come to some like real um perspective on it so that we can actually engage on the topic because neither of those are actually productive positions um and it leaves a lot of christians like me kind of in the middle be like i would love to engage the church on this i would love to help guide like how this could be talked about in your pulpits and how you can like how you can engage your communities to try and you know uh to to fix some of the cons while also accepting the the pros of this um but i I don't see a whole lot of that and it's it's a little bit disappointing to me I, i it's an opportunity as far as i can tell I mean, if you think, if you read a lot about like how early Christianity spread in the Roman empire, a lot of it was because Christians were caring for people that the Romans didn't care about. Um, That, you know, there were a lot of like sick people that had leprosy and all these horrible diseases that the Romans like just kind of didn't care about at all. And so the Christian communities were actually caring for those people. And that was one of the facilitators in like the rapid spread of Christianity in the Roman empire. Was engaging on that level and not saying, I don't want to be a part of it, um, but actually saying, No, we can engage this. And so, I think that there's a real opportunity for the church here to, to like, to like seriously go in on this topic and really understand it and really try and mitigate the problems and therefore be a witness to the people that are being affected by it,
0: right? So, let's say. You could snap your fingers and the majority of churches had a proper theology of the future of work, right? So striking that balance between not being Babylon, but also not trying to stop all progress. Uh, Taking it as it is, but also being cautious. Proper theology, though, has to have some sort of outworking. So what is the end result as far as action goes? Because I, I could see a minimal minimalistic view that I don't think covers it of just saying, all right, well, if you're a Christian employer, then think up jobs for people to be able to do. But I I don't think that really covers us very far. I don't know how many pastors are potentially prepared um, from an an economic training side, or maybe even a theological training side, because we haven't tackled this specific question before. So if you could have every pastor in America right in front of you, what do you tell them to tell the people?
1: What I tell them to tell the people actually is is less, I mean, I don't think like telling the people, I, I don't know of a sermon on it that I have in mind. What I do have in mind though is to stop thinking of um stop thinking of your congregation as clergy and lay people. Um like start thinking about no, like go back to Luther, like these priesthood of all believers. they you are all priests, you're all saints. Um, and you have business leaders, educators, those kind of people in your community. Um, how do you engage with them so that they actually take the lead there? I don't think that this is actually like a thing that I want, you know, a, like mega church pastor or someone else being like, here's what we got to do about AI. It's more about engaging and equipping and encouraging and putting those people in your congregation forward that can help. That do have ideas and talents and those kind of things like bring forward your business leaders and get them a, give them a more prominent place in the church um more prominent resources and like place to talk about things um and to help people because like i think right now we we've skipped that part we have this like hierarchy in the church where it's like okay the best Christians are pastors or missionaries and then like be like rungs below that, like in worst case, you're a business person, but tithe and that like redeems your work or something like that. And that's we need to completely get rid of that because that's not helpful. And the people that are going to be able to make the biggest difference in helping us in this transition are not pastors. They are business people. They are professors. They are those kind like activists. They are the people in your community that are doing other things outside of the church, but they need to be brought in and be made a prominent part of the church's mission. And yes. they're not right now. And that's, wh- that's what I think that we need that it's not a sermon. It's more of a structural problem, I think in the church mm-hmm. and the way that we view clergy and lay
0: people. And I don't yeah. think that's so what I'm hearing you say is if you ha- if you train the people, if the pastors train the people well as far as the theology of the priesthood of all believers, of um, how to view the future of faith and work, if, if they're trained theologically to think, then they will then know how to take that into their own fields and apply it. And hopefully they'll be able to connect with other people in their own congregation or across town who share right. the same you know, values and, and the same faith and, and then work it out together.
1: Exactly. And if they do good work, you know what? The church is a megaphone, right? If they're doing good work and you need to like, hey, we need to broadcast this. This is amazing what this person is able to do. And they need more attention, more resources, more whatever. Then you bring the, the full kind of resources of the church behind them and be like, how do we equip you? to do more of what you're doing? How do we give you a bigger voice within the Christian community to make this happen more? That's exactly it. And so my pastor, uh, Justin Anderson at Icon church here in Seattle, he has this, um, this kind of weekly, he calls it saturate school. And that's exactly it is to bring in. It's like a leadership training um, school where he brings in, you know, these people uh, and Um, from business communities and various backgrounds and really just thinks them to like uh, trains them to think uh, theologically about these things, about all of the aspects of being a leader in their where they are and what are the things like how do you work through some of these issues and that kind of stuff. And so that's where the training comes in and, and just bring that in. And then if the person goes out and does it and does really good work, then use the church megaphone to say, hey, we need more churches supporting this particular Alfred. How do we copy and paste this person in every church in America? Yes. How do we do that? Um, and that's where I think that like the church can really be, but it can't be a top-down pastor-led thing about what the solution is. And, and I, I think mean. that's that's too often what we do in the like evangelical Christian community in America is like the, the, the pastor's gotta have the answers. And on this case, I'm sorry, Pastors are not going to have the answers here. They're not the experts in these areas, um, but they can equip people to approach it with with their with a Christian perspective. Yeah, and and that's where their
0: role ends, though. Um, and I think I think we look a lot to if if you look at a church across the country and okay, internally within their church they have a great discipleship structure. They're seeing great numbers people are growing in faith. They're memorizing scripture. They have a model. So we're gonna copy and paste that model into our church. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. But what I'm hearing you say is you're commissioning these people in the church to go out into the world, not only breaking down the sacred and secular divide of clergy and businessmen, but of the walls of the church entirely. And so if we're creating models that people within the church are going out and creating themselves, whether it be in medicine, whether it be in any kind of labor or field, We then can broadcast that to other churches and say, if you have someone in this field, here are the things we're doing to sort of help, to employ people, to help the, the economy that's doing really well, but the people who may be suffering sort of participate.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that we're we're just too siloed, especially in the evangelical community, where it's like we feel like there needs to be a wall around our church and if it doesn't serve our particular church within our walls, if it's not increasing my attendance and, you know, all this kind of stuff, then it's not, you know, a pro- it's hard to get, you know, anyone to take it seriously um and because everyone like pastors have their own motivations and it's understandable to some degree but it's unfortunate because it it prevents some of this stuff from happening and so we end up having a bunch of like fractured efforts to do some of these things but it seems to me to be like kind of how and this is where this is why i think that parachurch stuff like happens um the parachurch organizations i think that's why they're so common is because of this because the churches aren't doing it and so like someone comes up with an idea to do it in a parachurch and there's problems with that. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I mean, that would be my, is just to have pastors take it a little bit more seriously. And then also to really like make an effort to break down that kind of uh, like really take really, really, really take seriously priesthood of believers and like break down that kind of, you know, clergy, Lay person divide and say no. That's not my goal. My goal is not to create a bunch of lay people who go out and come back here every Sunday. My my goal is to uh, commission them to go out and and be little Christs where they are.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the term Christian in and of itself, and that's helping the kingdom. It just as Christ inaugurated the kingdom in His first coming and will consummate it in His second we're still advancing and following our our marching orders, as an old professor of mine used to say. Um, Tripp, I really want to thank you um, for your time. Thank you so much for contributing to this community, not only in this podcast, but also with all the work that you're doing um, each and every day. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, I know that a lot of people will benefit from hearing this. So thanks for your time. Uh, One last thing I'll ask you, is, is there one question that you haven't necessarily figured out the answer to, but you want people to sort of be thinking about every day in their own work.
1: I mean, there's, there's questions that I think that people should be asking in their own work um, uh, every day. And I can't answer this for everyone. And I can't really, it's hard for me to even answer uh, this um, for myself, but I do think it's a question. It's more like a teleological question of like, what is the, what is the end result of my work? Right. Like what like what if I had a vision for what I was doing now and what what effect it would have on the future, um, what would that look like? And make that detailed and all encompassing, not just like I finished this project and it was fine and I got paid and whatever. But like if you own a business, like what do you want the lives of your employees to look like? right and how in what way does you as an employer play into that if you're a manager in an organization same thing um and and what like th- for a product that you're building for customers like what do what effect do i want this to have on them not just first order like my success metrics of am i predicting this but like what is the end result because i think that especially in my world in like kind of the machine learning artificial intelligence we have this tendency to reduce people down to statistics um, and because that's how we build these programs. Um, and and you can lose sight, and, and I think as an employer, as just someone in, in business or whatever, we could do the same thing where we just treat customers and you know as essentially revenue machines and employees as you know, whatever. Um, but I, I think that like we need to ask ourselves like, what does it mean to think about being a Christian in business and really making sure that all the people that are going to be affected by our work, um, are treated as image bearers. And so I don't have like a great like, method for doing that, um, but it is something that I'm thinking more and more about. It's like, what would it mean to treat everyone that is touched by my work, whether or not I ever meet them, or maybe even they never even buy my product? What is it like to treat them as an image bearer versus a number or a statistic? Um, and i think that like that's i think that that's something that like christians in business need to think a little bit more about or a lot more about than we do and i don't have a great way of like navigating that particular question but at least if we're asking the question i think we're asking the right one
0: i think you're almost answering your question yourself of we we treat people as image bearers by keeping the end in mind so not getting lost in the minutia in the details just seeing people as statistics but realizing that your work at the end of the day You are working on AI and machine learning to help people become physically fit, mentally fit, to become a better version of themselves. And that is helping them lean in to the fact that they were created by a good and gracious God. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep the end in mind, and that helps you treat people as if they're made in the image of God. Thank you so much for listening to the inaugural episode of Ergonomy. Please subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating and a review while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, at Ergonomy Podcast. Please stay tuned for more next week. We have a great episode we cannot wait to bring you. Ergonomy is a free-time media production.